Let's start. Any prayer requests? Hmm? My wife Mary. How's she doing? Is news? Good. Huh? Doing good. We're uh, pursuing uh, treatment. Uh, should be done by the end of this year. So just brief for a month. Hmm? The treatment's only for a month. Well, it's a one-time treatment. Ah, yeah. There's a lot of preparation. Yeah. Computer simulation and all that stuff. Oh, she she's doing okay. Yeah. yeah. Did a stealth MRI yesterday. We were the first step. Then she's got to get a master made and all that. And I said a lot of computer simulation and dry runs. That's a fifteen to twenty minute treatment. So yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. That fixes the problem. Yep. Hopefully. I've said this before. When we're young, we're we're too stupid and dumb. I mean, we think we're going to live forever, and and we're invulnerable and insusceptible to stuff. E even while accidents are going on, you know, when we're growing up, somebody will die, somebody will get hurt. But you reach an age, <laughs> everything starts going, and then as you watch the older generation drop off, you reach a point where you, where you know you're next, and. Huh? I mean, you know, it's coming. I mean, there's no. And then you went. How in the world could you grow up not feeling that your life? But we don't. And then suddenly, it's not overwhelming, but it's it's everywhere around us. It, I don't feel overwhelmed by it, but um, particularly here because we're all older. So it, something's happening to all of us, or most of us. Oh, really? Yeah, she's really, she's bad. She's really bad. How old is she? She is, I think she just turned 61. She's still young, she's some ways, relatively young, yeah. Yep. Mm, thanks. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, um, your words, um, your life itself. Um, for the great gift of the disciples and the long crowds of witnesses, clouds of witnesses, crowds large, following you um, who brought you to us, the reading this morning, Paul talks about how important it is um, to believe and to take what we believe out so that others can hear and live it. Wouldn't that be so for all of us to if not let a shyness or a pride get in the way of taking you to the world? Um, our country needs to be evangelized pretty seriously. Um, we've lost our way, you know that, better than we do. Um, give us all the courage to bring you to our world. Um, I think all of us know how awful it is not to have you, to be without you. That's got to be even more true for people who don't know you at all or don't want to. So give us the strength, um, the humility to take you out, offer you, make your kingdom real by what we do. Ask for a special blessing on Mary. She begins her treatment 
and on Don. Let his heart be quiet. Um, um, if you can be sure that Mary gets the care that she should, that it's fitting and that she's responsive to it and through uh, whatever difficulties might arise, um, that she stay firm in her faith, in her trust, whatever happens. Um, let it be so for Don as well. And for Janie, um, watch over her. If, if this is the last stage of her life, um, help her to make her peace with the world. Be glad for all that she's been given. Death should be a reminder for all of us that we can lose it any time. We shouldn't take anything, anything for granted. Ask for a special grace for uh, Marcy and Bob. Um, protect Marcy. Um, and see her through this difficulty and um, steady Bob and the help he offers and the exhaustion he must feel for his care. For Chris and Kayla, um, um, for all of us, for all the hopes and longings, wounds, um, thanksgiving that all of us carry in our heart um, from being with you. Let us all be glad to be a part of your body. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> Son of the Spirit. Um, I want to preface what we do today. I, this has been weighing on my mind a lot, so I want to kind of do kind of that sheet doc with a circle you just passed down. I'll get it. I'll get it. I got you. Go ahead. Thanks. Thanks. Um, I've tried to be really careful in in going over the Reformation period and Milton. Um, um, be, be, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I said this at the beginning of our work on Milton, that I've always had difficulties with lots of things in Paradise Lost and tackled them somewhat, but as a teacher at UG, I really felt my first focus was to see the poem in the light of the poetic tradition. So whatever catechetical problems um, that I faced, I wanted to take some care with it. It wasn't appropriate to make this a catechetical um, presentation, uh, an approach. Here it's different because this is catechetical. The whole point of what we were doing before we did Milton and Dante was to find Christ where we're nearly, we don't see him. That was a, a wonderful gift to me. I think for most of you who've stayed on it, you wouldn't be here still, but, um, but that was um, wonderful, a joy to do, because it, it, it makes so much of what we've done make clear um, how present Christ is in our lives. So, but to tackle Milton and Dante, or Dante yeah, was in some ways especially difficult because Milton brings a Reformation spirit to the poem, Dante is going to be utterly Catholic, and I wanted to try to take some care not to make what I did with Milton too negative. 
Um, it's impli I mean, implicitly or explicitly, I've been critical of lots of things. Um, the whole point of this was to put the two next to each other, hopefully in order to strengthen our own faith, to understand more about our faith by seeing <coughs> how it's different, what it's not, but also in order to see um, what's at the heart of the Protestant world and the way um, it's very much present, the, the, the problems that it's created, what I think, I think disorders in the modern world. So it's not been an easy thing to do. And I, I want to finish Milton today just by saying a few words to sum up the work that we've done. But I want to preface it with this. Um, I think I probably said something like this at the beginning, but it's even more important to say it now because of the contrast that we've been looking at. So I want to say this. I, I tried to make this clear before. <clears throat> if you look at Dante, 90%, I don't know, let's say this is an, an estimation, I don't know, approximation. 70% of the souls in hell are Catholic. Okay, so holding our faith is not a guarantee. We're not going to get to heaven. I mean, lots of, Christ himself says, lots of people say, Christ, 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 won't be with me. So being Catholic doesn't guarantee us a place in heaven. I, I'm trusting that's an, a given for all of us. Um, in some ways, that's not quite as true for a Protestant world because a Protestant world believes once they're saved, it's over. And there's an assurance in that. I mean, the, the belief in that is really strong. So I, I want to make this statement. What I've been trying to do is to present things objectively without making judgments, e even though I've had to come to some conclusions based on what we're looking at with you know, Mil the way Milton starts with an angelic mode, the implications of that, what he did to um, our reading of Genesis, to, to try to look at those objectively, um, come to conclusions about them. But, but I, 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 can't, I can't hear myself doing it, I can't recall doing it, I don't want to do it. Having said that, I can't make a judgment on the individual end of a person. Salvation is in God's hand. The second commandment is, um, don't take God's name in vain. That does not mean don't swear. Damn it. <laughs> it means don't speak for God. I hope that's clear. Because lots of people reduce that to something silly. You know, you're not supposed to swear. No, you're not supposed to swear by God. It's not when I've, we talked about this when we did Hamlet. When Hamlet wants to kill Claudius at prayer, he wants to do it because he wants to damn him. He knows he killed his father. The reason he doesn't kill him is um, because he wants to get him at a time when when he does kill him, it'll be a damnable moment. You know my reading of that, that, that Hamlet has all sorts of um, dangerous moments where he's, his life is in question, at risk. That moment, nothing happens. If you read the play, nothing happens. But if you look at the play clearly, he's, he's, his ultimate salvation is more at risk in that moment than at any other time in the play, because he wants to damn another human being. It's not in his hands to do it. Vengeance has so taken over him. He so much wants to kill the king that he's, um, he's taking the place of God. I hope that's clear. He can't do that. The second commandment is, um, don't take God's name in vain. We cannot speak for God. So it's not in our power 
to judge whether a person's damned or saved. The church has to go through an awful lot to determine whether somebody's canonized. I mean, that, that doesn't come easily. And, and interesting, just a, a quick side note, I've mentioned this, um, I think, during the play or the movie when we watched Man for All Season. Moore wasn't canonized until recently because the take on him is that he, too much of what he did was in order to save his own life. So it doesn't look like he's saintly. Those of you who saw the movie who were here in the weekend um, know that everything he, when he would say to Meg or, or, or to his wife, he said, I'm not made of that stuff. Don't worry. Martyrdom's not in me. I mean, he's very clear. Everything he did was in the interest of trying to hold on to his life, to fight off this world, attacking him, wanting to find some fault in him, in order to remain alive, to, be, to work, to be a father, a husband. So in some sense, it looks like it's too self-serving. I don't believe that myself. He was finally canonized. But that was the take on him. The tr this, this is centuries, centuries after his death. So that's how long it took to, you know, to canonize him. I, I, my argument, I mean, I don't know what the church's position on My argument is that he did everything he could to hold on to a life because a life is worth saving. But part of the interest of that was not just himself, it was justice. He, he believed what the king did was so wrong and that his life and soul would be claimed if he signed off on that, you know, the, the uh, act of succession and then the supremacy act, those two acts. If he signed off on those, he would be damning his soul because he couldn't give away the Pope because he couldn't give away Christ. So it wasn't just for himself. He, he was doing everything he could to protect a life. It's like somebody taking a pro-life stand in the pro, you know, in the abortion movement today that you... You're giving your life to, in order to protect another life, to hold on to it. So the church does everything it can um, to, um, before it speaks on the issue of salvation, it can't be taken lightly. Um, so, um, where was I going? Where was I started? All the Catholics in hell. All the Catholics in hell. So I just wanted to make clear in any of this, I can't make a judgment on individual lives, and it's not what I'm trying to do. I can come to certain tentative conclusions, provisional conclusions about Milton as a man. I think he's very isolated, lonely as a man. That's, that's not from the chair, it's ex cathedra, you know, it's, it's me. One of the essays that T.S. Eliot wrote on Milton begins when he said, Milton was antipathetic. It's a pretty harsh criticism, I and mean, he's just a very, um, he's not a man that you can easily feel, you can feel easily towards, sympathetic towards. He was so, so zealous, so, so fierce, and so alone in so much of what he did. So I can't make a personal judgment on people's lives. What I've been trying to do is present objectively, as objectively as I could, fundamental differences between Catholicism in the Protestant world. She's been waiting for you. <laughs> I've been trying to present what I believe are objective truths about differences between the two realities. 
without going to judgments on individual people because it's not my place. But I wouldn't have done this if I didn't believe that the differences are real. It's a matter of our faith. And, and there's lots that reason can do to support our faith. That's what we've been doing. So very quickly, let me just try to put together some of the obvious differences between the Protestant soul, mind, and the Catholic. We know from having looked at the, um, the Reformation thinkers that the differences are radical, fundamental. All of the Reformation um, theologians, reformers, the, um, denied the true presence of Christ at the Mass regularly. All of them. Um, almost all of them took away most of the sacraments. The two sacraments that held consistently among the reformers was the Eucharist and baptism, and even Calvin didn't believe in the Eucharist. Um, most of them saw the authority in its approach to the Bible resting in the congregation, which meant that at any time the congregation shifted, if its, if its, if its membership shifted in views, its views on the church could change. That's one of the reasons the Protestant churches keep fragmenting, because people will disagree over time. They will break off. The starting point for the Protestant, remember, is um, an act of faith. You begin with a supersensible experience. Your belief in something supersensible, supernatural. There's no way reason can test that out. At that point, you, be you become the arbiter of your life. That was an essential position for Milton. Absolutely essential. Um, Luther wanted to see the Catholic Church destroyed. Literally destroyed. He believed everything about it was wrong. Um, he thought the congregation should choose priests, which once again ceded the authority for decisions like that in, in a congregation, whatever they happened to believe. He believed that the most important thing was man's relationship between him and God. Um, um, he, he challenged the notion of transubstantiation. He replaced it with the idea of consubstantiation, that, that the wafer remains the same while Christ is in it. Um, there's so much about the Protestant world that isolates the individual, that separates him, because he makes his starting point and his end point his faith in God as a, as a subjective thing, denies the objective reality of Christ in the Eucharist and the sacraments. Um, set that off against the Catholic world and you, you find fundamental differences. There's a tendency of Catholics to flock together. Everybody goes up for the Eucharist. Um, there's a danger in the Protestant mind because if you begin with the act of faith, it's, it's difficult for anybody to be able to reason with that person. You can't, really, you can't argue. I mean, if that belief can't be tested out by reason, there's nothing you can say. So it tends to fragment. For the Catholic, the Eucharist is objectively real. It's something we all bend to. So there's an encouragement in, the, in what's happening with us um, to be obedient, to bend, to give our wills. Um, to, to take something as real independently of anything we believe or hold or want or 
So, for example, in marriage, marriage is a sacrament. I mean, it brings people together on, on the sacrifice. The, ma- the marriages are part of the Mass because couples are, are being brought together with the understanding that they're going to go to a cross together. They're going to suffer each other. They're going to be wounded. Um, um, we're asked to give our wills. That's why, that's why divorces are so hard in the Catholic they, they take place, but once again, the church has to go through a lot. To... So over and over and over and everywhere in our faith, there are all these things happening to encourage us to answer our pride, put ourselves away, to give ourselves to something um, that involves us in sacrifices. We know that that's a part of our faith. And the act of faith for us is not just in our head, although that's where it begins, it carries over into the sacrament. So when we take the sacrament, the Eucharist, we should, I'm, we've gone over this so many times now, we should be aware that in that moment we're taking Christ, all of him, human and divine, into us. So something of us is entering into a divine condition. That word the, that I've given for theosis, gradually becoming God, God took on man so that man could become God. That we enter into a divine life because of what Christ did. Moreover, because Christ entered matter, took on a human body, he made matter sacred. Matter for the Protestant world is corrupt. It's depraved. Sex is, Calvin looked at sex as an awful thing. Um... I think Catholics are supposed to enjoy sex a little bit more. I, by the way, Pope John Paul, well, you know he wrote Theology of the Body, and sadly some of the, some of the church reacted as if that were too demeaning to take on the body. At the center of our faith is this glory in the human body, that God did something so amazing in creating you. We're not angels. If we don't accept our bodies, there's something wrong with us. John Paul wrote Theology of the Body. And I know in one of his audiences, he made a point of speaking to the men and telling the men, you should be sure you're making all your wives come to climaxes. That's a duty. <laughs> that's, John, that's the Pope. <laughs> I think the world probably was scandalized that, you know, that a Pope would say such a thing. By the way, I hope it's true. I hope most women take it as a given that women are supposed to help out on that. <laughs> I need to be careful right now. <laughs> Some people are turning red. Um, anyway, there's this glory in the body. It's not something to look down. And if you go back to the sources, the philosophical sources of these two views, one is Platonic, one is Aristotelian. We've already gone through that, and I'm going to come to that now. Remember, for Plato, the only thing you could know for certain were the forms. For Plato, they're in a supersensual world, in an other world, outside of the cave. Um, and I, I tried to illustrate that when we were doing Milton. Remember that Milton starts with an angelic world. When Raphael comes down to meet with Adam, he has to explain that world, angelic world, the war in heaven. And to do that, he says, I have to use corporeal images because you're a man. So he uses mountain gunpowder. Do we ever know what they stand for? Absolutely not. He starts with a supersensory world, an angelic world dimension. He has to relate it to a human. He uses corporeal images, but we never get down to earth. We go back into that world. Those are metaphors for something. What the something is, we don't know. 
what the mountains, what I think what we're supposed to, so if they can pick, if the angels can pick up mountain and use gunpowder, that what's going on in that war is beyond telling. If you can lift up a mountain, I mean, it's, it's an image of something you can't do. That it, they're supposed to image impossible sorts of things. So we have, we, we have no way of getting back to the natural order there. Plato believed that the forms were the unchanging things, so they were the only things that could give us certain knowledge, because everything in the world is shifting, it's constantly changing, we, it's, it's, a, it's in flux, we can't know it. We can only have doxa, opinion, according to him. Aristotle took the opposite position. He says, you start with a very ordinary thing, and by a process of um, analogy, of of taking steps up the ladder of being, we can come to know higher things. Um, um, and for Aristotle, as you ascend the ladder of being, you never leave the common thing behind. St. Paul said the same thing. We know the invisible things through the things that are made. The only way we can come to know the invisible reality are through the things that are made. Because as humans, that's in accord with our nature. We are corporeal beings, not angelic. Angels don't have bodies, we do. So, so many of the poems that we've read, like, like The Wind Hover, right? And Supernatural Love, the four-year-old the four girl who pricks herself. In, in, in all the poems that we've read, the poet begins, let's take The Wind Hover. The poet begins with a bird. And he looks at the bird and he finds in the moment when the bird does something, an image of Christ mastering the cross. And then he, he applies the same analogy to the fire going out and the farmer plowing, you remember? So, so often the great poets reveal supernatural realities, but they always do it through the common thing. And we're gonna find that in Dante. Um, so those are some of the differences, and I want to repeat what I said earlier because to me it, it's just, it, it's so important. What it, we came here to try to look objectively at differences between the Protestant and Catholic worlds, the different ways we engage our world. The differences are fundamental, um, but it's impossible to make judgment. I, I, speaking for myself personally, and here I'm just, this is, this is me personally speaking from my own experiences. There's not a question in my mind that, that lots of Protestants that I know and that I don't even know are going to see Christ. I have no doubt about it. And there are likely to be lots of Catholics who will not. Those, they're, not they're not given. You know, there are lots of Protestants who believe in Christ more than anything. I believe Milton did. I believe Milton did. Um... What that means for how they will appear, what their condition will be in heaven, I don't know. When we get to Dante and the Paradiso, we're going to see some things that I think will throw a light on that question. Um, but I want to wait till then. I believe what we do here makes a difference. If, the, if a Protestant fully lives his faith, genuinely gives himself to Christ, I believe him. I believe he'll see Christ. If a, if a Catholic does, I believe he will. But I also believe there will be a difference in their condition, to what they bring to the next life, because it will reflect what they did here. Um, those are personal 
beliefs, but they're based on what I believe are objective truths. So let me just quick overview, okay? Um, what I'd like to do now is take a look at um, two things we did last week briefly, or one thing I touched on I want to go back over. But I didn't go over this, this schema with you, did I, with the circles? Can you all take it out? I was trying to find a way of summarizing differences between the Catholic and Protestant worlds. I tried to fit it together all in one circle and superimpose another on it, but I couldn't. Suzanne's suggestion was that um, I showed different circles, so that's what we did. We worked this thing out. So take a look at the first page, the Christian world. We've got four circles, two at the top, two at the bottom. On the left is the Catholic, the right is the Orthodox. Um, I put them together because both of them are completely sacramental. The Eastern Orthodox world has all the sacraments. There's a sense of holiness and mysticism in the Orthodox world that, that you won't find, certainly in the Protestant fundamentalist church. You'll find it in the high Protestant church, Anglicanism, um, Episcopalianism, some of them. But even there, I think it's lost, and, and I'll say why in a minute. But I've got the two of them at the top. Take a look at the two of them. The, the reason the Catholic world is unshaded, that it's completely open, is because everything's there. What I'm suggesting by that circle is that the fullness of Christ is most present in the Catholic Church because it has everything in it, the sacraments, dogma, tradition, scripture. It, at the heart of our faith is a belief in the logos. We don't believe that nature's corrupted. We believe it's wounded. So the logos is present everywhere. That's why we've been seeing it in poetry. Yes, I hope that's clear. So when we did the wind hover or supernatural love or can you think, anybody think of another poem? Um, we've done a lot. The Psalms. It's all there. And we have this imagery that, that tries to capture the wholeness of Christ, the bride of Christ, the marriage. The, what goes on between a man and a woman, spousal love, has its source, archetype, in Christ's relationship to his church. He is the bridegroom calling his bride. The book of Rev Revelation ends, come, come. It's asked the bride and the bridegroom are responding to each other. So the sense of an intimate union. And the source of that, that, that spousal love, the Trinity. I mean, think about the difference between a Protestant who, and Milton says this in Paradise Lost, God is single. He says to Adam, remember, he said, I'm solitaire. And you, you can't read the passages between the Father and Son in Paradise Lost without having the sense they don't know what next is going to be said. It's like they're just, it's like they're just learning what the other thinks. God is informing the Son of something the Son didn't know. How can that happen? That's why Dante doesn't present God in the Commedia. How can that happen if they're indwelling each other in the Trinity? The Trinity means I'll, and I'll get to this notion before. They are one, perfectly one with each other. They indwell. The Father and Son is in the Spirit. The Spirit and Son is in the Father. They, they are one with each other, absolutely. 
So there's nothing one of them does that the other doesn't share in fully. Not in the way of knowledge, not in the way of love. Okay? So the spousal love, the mystical body that we are parts of a whole. Christ says, I am in my Father. You are in me. I am in you. That means we participate in the intimacies of the Trinity. That's what we should be doing in our life. Can we do that if we don't put ourselves away? I don't think so. It means being receptive, open, moving with. If you start with faith as a subject of experience, how likely are you going to move with another? Um, so I tried to suggest the, the completeness of it there. Remember, the, the basis of the Reformation movement was sola scriptura, sola fidea, faith alone, scripture alone. Um, Thomas More said when he started, when Luther posted his theses, Thomas More and Erasmus were both Catholics and both of them um, passionately opposed Luther. He wanted to see the Catholic Church done away with. Um, one of, somewhere, I can't remember where, but Moore says of Luther, Luther's absolutely mistaken. How can you say scripture alone? Because tradition pre-existed it. In some sense, scripture came out of it. The tradition was already there. It was there in its Jewish form, and it was already in place before the scriptures were written. Because after the, Euch after the Last Supper, Paul makes this clear. People who are following Christ are already practicing the Eucharist. They've already, a tradition is already beginning in him. So, and we know from the early church councils that constantly people presented these beliefs that Christ was one thing or another, that Christ was all man or he was all God, he wasn't both, and so the church had to oppose these. Without the tradition or the authority of the church, how could they have done that? It would have been impossible. People would have just held on to different beliefs. Some people would have believed Christ was just a man. Remember, two of, the, two of the heresies that I mentioned before were Sabellianism and Arianism. And Arian believed that Christ was just a man. Sabellius believed that Christ was the Father come down in another mode. Not the Son, the Father. So all of these heresies deny the Trinity as a starting point for everything we do. Well, what if the church had not had an authority to answer those? Could we have said then that, that the authority of Christ is alive in the church? If people could simply make of him whatever they wanted? It would have been non-existent. People could have made it what they want. So it's all there. If you look at the Orthodox Church, my way of presenting it is to shade some of the things on the dogma side and tradition for this reason. And I think the one thing will explain both of them. You see where I've shaded things out there in dogma and tradition slightly? The Greek church, principally Greek, not just the whole Eastern Earth, but principally Greek, broke off from the Western church 1054, I think was the date, 11th century, 1054. Um, it was schismatic, it broke off over the issue of the filioque. According to the Western church, the, the, the words of the um, creed. creed, thanks Don, um, were, um, 
The Father, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay? The Holy Spirit, wait, wait, let, sorry, let me go back for a second. I've presented this before, but I, I, I can't always take it for granted that people think much about this, but hold on. The Father, God, the Father, Yahweh, God, when he thinks about himself, when he conceives himself, in his knowledge of himself, hmm, he has an idea. He conceives of himself. The way we do when we have an idea. When we've got, we're going to sit down and write an essay. We've got an idea in our head, right? As humans, we sit down to write because until we flesh it out, that idea will never be enough. You know that because you can write a paper and then start looking at it and say, no, that's not quite what I meant. You've got this intuition, this light, this idea in your head. It's, a, it's immaterial. It's angelic. Until we flesh it out, until we give it words, we will never have it. It'll remain blurred, darkened. Yeah, you're all following. When God conceives of himself, the product of that conception is a word, an image of him. In me you find the Father. It's the Son. It can't be a force, like an electrical force. It has to be a person. Because God himself as being, complete being, is a person. So in the conception of himself, the word, an image of himself, is the Son. He's not made, not something other. He's one with the Father, co-eternal. Right? And the Holy Spirit is the same thing with a different procession. The, the Western Creed is the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the love between the Father and Son gives rise to the Spirit. Okay? That's the Trinity. There can't be two sons because there aren't two concepts of the Father. There can only be one concept of Him. He's the unity of the Father. That's the way He's described. There can only be one motion of love between the Father and Son. That's the Spirit. So the intellect and will of God are present in the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now is that clear? If it's not say. Is anybody holding back? You're all okay? Okay. Somehow I don't believe you, but I'm... <laughs> because, you know, people write volumes on this. It's, it's not easy, but... Eastern Orthodox Church says, no, the Holy Spirit proceeds directly from the Father without the Son, the filioque. Okay? Um, so, for the Greek... The love, as the Western Church understands it, the love of the Father doesn't have an object. It's not the Son. The Spirit comes into being as a, as a procession independent, separate from the Son. Now to a lot of people that doesn't, I mean, it, a lot of people are going to shake their heads because that's such an abstruse concept, you know, it's just so abstract, but let me offer you a thought. I was at Maglin during a lunch meeting. We always went from our classroom to lunch, and discussions never stopped at that school. It's, they went on everywhere. We were talking about something, and for the first time in my life, what I thought was one of the implications of the differences just hit me like um, a, um, a, a lightning bolt. Um, Western Church, 
The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Or from the Father and the Son. What are the words? Do you remember? What are the words of the Creed when we get to that point? God the Father, uh, Creator of heaven and earth, and one. Yeah, but when we get to that point where we get to the procession. <coughs> never mind, never mind, never mind, never mind. Here, let me just offer this thought. Christ is the incarnation. He incarnates God, right? That's what it means, incarnate, in flesh. Christ in fleshes gives God a body on earth. He takes on human nature, yeah? So Christ is the form, and by the way, he's the form of the Father, the idea of the Father, and he, we know he was the means of creation. I think for that reason, he's the source of all form giving. This is going to get... Mary Jane's looking at me very patiently. <laughs> right? We know that John, in the beginning was the word, through him all things are made. Right? Okay. The Son is the means of all creation. So in one sense, he's the form of all mediations, all incarnations. He brings things into being. The Father is the giver of everything. Um, creation was through the Son. Okay? He's the form of mediations. If you take the Son out of the procession, the Holy Spirit um, proceeds from the Father, take the Son out, it's a serious question for me whether you, not, whether you don't undermine the role of the Son in all incarnations. Look at Eastern art. Eastern art from its beginnings, from its beginnings, is platonic. It's an, aniconic. It's, it's, like, it's abstract geometrical art. Because it's always otherworldly. Because in the Eastern Church, the, other, the tendency of the Eastern Church from Arius, all the heresies, are all otherworldly. They hold on to the other world, the Father. They don't want anything to compete with the Father. So the tendency of the Eastern Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox churches have been otherworldly, constantly. If you look at the art, the art is geometric. They don't want us stuck here. When the Renaissance happens and perspective enters art, the Eastern Church is horrified by that. Be because it looks like the, the, the effect would be to diminish the importance of the otherworldly, the, the mystical, the sacred. Western Church is against that. The, the priest turns this way to bring Christ to us as a way of showing everything in the world is sacred. So one of the effects of, the, I think, I mean, this is, take it as speculation if you... I think is to the extent that you underplay the role, undercut the role of the son, theologically, you undercut his role on earth. If you look at Eastern art, it stopped with the Renaissance, with the Middle Ages. If you go back to Eastern art, it's all geometric. Look at Eastern or Western art, moving forward. The spirit present in time. Could the wind hover or supernatural love little girl wounded, could that kind of art have emerged in, under the Eastern regime? It's hard for me to see it happen. I, I don't want to make it categorical because I know things like that do happen, but generally, I think it's safe to say, generally speaking, it's, it's a fair assumption. It's Eastern art continues to be geometric. It se seems to me one of the qualities of the Western church is that it moves forward with the spirit. 
one of my aches, personal aches in this world, really troubles me. It really bothers me when I see our church staying in the past. It, it really troubles me that we don't have more artists, painters, musicians at work in our church because the music and art should keep up with, should answer the times. John Paul's Theology of Body to me was one of the most perfect expressions of the Pope responding to a disorder in the world, all the disorders concerning our human body. He put them to rest in that book. He was, he was responding to a Puritan world, a, a world that's been Puritan for centuries since the Reformation. That to me was an indication of the spirit for me moving in time. Because that's, when I read this, I'm not kidding now, I mean, you may, you may think I'm making too much of this. When I read that book, it was, I, we had already been Catholic for a good number of years. I had a visceral, palpable feeling of Christ moving about our world. Like, you know, the way he moves in the city through the streets, the, the woman bleeding and what touches his hem and all those things. You can see Christ responding to problems. When I read that book, I thought, there's Christ. He's, he's immediately involved in a disorder, a serious disorder in our time concerning the human body. Because we live like angels in our world. We, we live too much in our heads, I believe. So the Western church struggles more in tr trying to move with the spirit. When it makes serious decisions, it does it with the sense that it's working with the Spirit. How else could they do it if they're moving, the magisterium, if they're moving with Christ at all? So there are fundamental differences here, okay? A high Protestant church, if you look at it, there are several areas shaded out. They deny the unity of the church because they deny the Pope, and I want to come back to that. Um, and all of them, in some sense, compromise the purity of the church because they tend to accommodate down to a nation or a race. The Greek Orthodox, this is, this is the, one of the points I should make about Orthodoxy. Greek Orthodoxy, um, how to put this? There's a challenge to the Orthodox Church because the temptation is to, to let its race become more important than its faith. And very often its race filters its belief in Christ. A couple of weeks ago, during the Mass we were celebrating, it was the, um, the saint was Jehoshaphat, I can't remember. He was in the, the Polish Czechoslovakia and I can't remember, it was a, had a different name. But he was trying to um, encourage the people who were in the Eastern Orthodox, in, whether it was Czechoslovakia or Poland, I don't remember where. It's one of those countries, Lithuania, I can't remember. And lots of people were beginning to be persuaded to come into the Catholic faith, but one of the bishops of the Orthodox Church so resented it that he had people kill him. He was martyred. Because the last thing they would have done is given themselves to the faith, to leave their own race. Because race can, race can become a filter that actually keeps you from Christ. Remember, one of the lines I gave you weeks ago was, the purity of the spirit can never be racial or national. Catholicism stands above that. It's the, for me, one of the ironies, you know, when, in, our, in our settling as a country, when the, when the um, Irish and 
and Italians came over. They were, they were Catholics and killing each other. Why? Because their race was more important than their faith. When we converted, I remember going to a, a friend in the, at um, College Under Dame where I was teaching. David Ramsey was the head of the art department, and we had just converted. And to do it meant leaving my family because if you're Greek Orthodox, you're, you're Greek. If you leave, if, you, if you're Catholic, you, it's an insult. I mean, you, you cut yourself out of the race. We, we converted. I remember going to David and telling him that it was not an easy thing for us to do. And I can't remember the question that I put to him, but it had to do with that. And his response to me, it's a, it was a lightning bolt moment for me. He said, um, well, it's like comparing apples and oranges. Because for him, he knew that faith was higher than anything anyway. That shouldn't be a problem. But in, what I'm suggesting is in Eastern Orthodox world where your race defines the faith, it actually becomes a filter. It can actually compromise the integrity of your faith. I think that's true in the English world with Anglicanism and Episcopalianism. To be, to be Anglican runs the risk of letting your faith be colored by your political beliefs. That's just a fact. It happens. There's a tendency to accommodate down to the world always when your identity with a nation or a race becomes that important. And by the way, just um, on that... Oh, it's not here. Oh, yeah, here at the bottom of that first page. A temporalizing of eschatological ends characterized the Protestant world. In Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, any of those churches that, that break off from Catholicism tend to move to accommodate to the political order. That was true with Henry. Remember when Henry wanted to defeat the Scots and force them to become Anglican? And then the Scots defeated the English and wanted them to become Presbyterians? They were all using their political, they were all using politics to force people to accommodate their own beliefs. America grew out of that. You know, the Bill of Rights, the, the protections of our faith came out of those awful disorders. Temporalizing of eschatological ends characterizes the Protestant world. The church becomes a human institution, the reading of scripture a merely private affair, and a life of faith based on the sacraments gets reduced to a moral code. We saw this in Moby Dick, we saw it in Go Down Moses and the, the Snowstorley, particularly in the town. The tendency of the, the world when you get rid of the sacraments is to reduce Christianity to a moral code, respectability. And once you do that, it becomes an enabling mechanism, a scapegoating, an enabling scapegoating. It's much easier to point to other people or, or cover them up than deal with things. The Catholic Church is <laughs> much harder and in many ways more, more painful because it, it asks us not to do those things. Um, you get closer to the cross, I think, um, there. Huh. <laughs> we are fine, Suzanne. <laughs> Just read and enjoy this for a minute, for a minute. As one Anglican priest put it, such phrases as the bride of Christ or body of Christ to convey the idea of the possession of absolute truth and superhuman authority is the language not of mysticism, but of emotional, sentimental. This is an Anglican priest. Okay. Such phrases as the bride of Christ or body of Christ, to him are nonsense. 
To convey the idea of the possession of absolute truth and superhuman authority is the language not of mysticism, but of emotional sentimentalism. It is unlikely that the world will ever be impressed by such phrases again. I mean, I, how wrong he is. By the way, this was written, I don't know, 50, 7,500 years ago. When I was at a college, I don't want to start naming, when I was at a college, the guy who was the head of the religious studies department had similar beliefs. He, I, I was stunned when I, because I, in, in the naivety of me as a person, I'd already taken my doctorate, I was teaching in the college. I heard him say something once that shocked me, and I went uh, asked him to have lunch with me and talk. He didn't believe in the resurrection, or the mystical body, or miracles, or he explained them away. He had been a Catholic priest and converted to the Protestant world, explained them away. And I know from my friendship with people at USF that so many of the um, um, Jesuit theologians held similar beliefs. So it's not like it's peculiar to the Protestant world. It's not. I mean, the liberal Catholic Church, the theologians, under the influence of liberation theology, under Marx, and held the same beliefs. There is a Remember, I called it the advent of the sign, that we bring the mysteries down under reason. When that happens, we begin to explain things away. That's something the church has always fought against. It did in the beginning with the heresies, or it wouldn't have been fighting. It still is. So, um, when you deny the Pope and the unity in the sacraments, you begin to cut yourself off from the wholeness of Christ, particularly in his mystical body, his mystical present, the divine present. In the fundamentalist world, you can see in the bottom right-hand circle, it keeps scripture alive, but the effect of that and everything else it does is to undercut it everywhere. It takes away the sacraments. Let me offer one last thought before we turn from this. So Suzanne will stop giving me hard looks. Um, one of the women in Monday class, I was so glad for her. She's Anglican. She's been coming to class. I'm, I so admire her courage. She's been here listening to all this. And she's been very, very gracious. She, she made a point the other night when, when I was going over this. She said, we don't deny the Pope, Anglican. She said, but we, we do deny infallibility. I'm, I'm going to bring this back to her. We, um, we just talked about it briefly, but I want to come back. I just want you guys to think about this, the infallibility issue, because it's a serious problem. Imagine what would have happened to our church. Wait, by the way, go back to that section in Matthew, that passage in Matthew where Christ says, who do you say I am? We've gone over it. You weren't here, but he asks everybody who they say I am. They can't answer. And he turns to the disciples and he says, who, who do you say they say I am? And they can't answer. He looks to Peter and he says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. That, I can't speak that. It stuns me. He says... Nobody told you that. That came from God. You didn't do that by yourself. It's after that, in that context, that he gives Peter the keys. Who you lose, who you buy. Now stop for a moment and think. You, you all remember the taking of the auspices moment in ancient literature, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Iliad. Taking of the auspices, you see an auspices, an, an omen. Um, Aeneas does it at the river Tiber. He sees the, the sows, which will be an image of Rome. And he looks for a confirmation, and he's given one. Because you don't know when you see an omen that you may be hallucinating. You have, it's just reasonable to test it out. 
Theodicy, the night before Odysseus's battle, he hears the old woman crying out. She says, I, I, I wish a curse on these men because they've been breaking down our knees, grinding down our knees for years. She's cursing the suitors they've worn around. And Odysseus' first thought goes back to the Cyclops because you remember he, he ground the people down and ate them. And if you, those of you who are with me remember that that image in the Cyclops cave is an archetypal image of what exists in the suitors. It's an, we're going to be seeing this everywhere in Dante. It's an image of a spiritual disorder. It's invisible to us. We don't see how grotesque it is. But inside of every one of us is a Cyclops, this wanting to use other people for ourselves, to eat them. Remember, we either give ourselves away as bread or we eat others. That's our choice. Um, um, sorry, where was I going? God. Is it going? Help me out, story. Where did I? Um, God. Holy cow, I really am losing it. You're saying something about the Anglican. Infallibility. Oh, yeah. they just don't believe in they infallibility. Don't believe in yeah. That's where you started. But they don't believe in infallibility. If you take, yeah, I give you the keys. Oh, taking the auspices. Um, those are taking the auspices moments. A, a strange things happen, an omen. It could be divine, it could be a trick. You look for a confirmation, and it comes. That's from the ancient pagan world. In the scene in Matthew, he says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Christ, Christ says, you didn't get that by yourself. That came from God. My belief is the church is established in that moment. I, I don't know if the, where the church is on this, but if you think about it, it's amazing. That's a taking of the auspices. Peter sees, wait, picture it. All the other disciples have no clue. He says, who do you say I am? Peter's the one. After that moment when he says, you're the Christ, does Peter appear differently to any of the other disciples, or is he the same man? Absolutely the same man. Do they see the significance of what happens inside him? No. Christ does. I'm only saying this because a miracle has taken place. The Holy Spirit, or God, has enlightened him. And who confirms it? Christ. There's the church. Peter will be vested with the Holy Spirit. You have the keys. Now, how many people read that? See it. How many people present in that moment see it? None. If we keep waiting for a miracle like a thunderbolt to hit us, we can keep waiting forever. Because very often miracles are taking place, right? Why have I been reading or presenting all this lyric poetry? Because so much more is going on around us that we don't see. Here's my point. Taking the auspices, there it is. Take away the infallibility of the Pope and deal with all those heresies in the beginning of the church. What would have happened? The Pope doesn't use his infallibility often. It rarely happens. If somebody were going to threaten the doctrine of the real presence of Christ and there was nobody there to say no, what would happen? Our modern world. You make him whatever, in a democracy, whatever you believe is just as good as anything else anybody else believes. Politically, in political terms, the church is gone. 
So with respect to some of these major issues, what I'm trying to present here is the wholeness of everything there. Christ, I believe, I'm not a theologian and I'm not a, I believe that Christ gave Peter the keys and we see the significance of the church in that moment. Christ gave him the keys because he knew better than anybody the dangers, the temptations, the threats, the disorders that the church would have to, would be facing if it was going to hold on to him. Take that authority away. How capable would the church be of dealing with evil then? Okay, so some of the, some of the charges against the church on the surface seem reasonable, particularly in a modern democracy. But if you think about what's really at stake here, it makes it so clear nobody was more aware of evil, nobody, than Christ. To vest Peter with that authority may seem strange. People, I think lots of people read that passage and don't give it a thought. It's just this strange thing happens. But there's a lot happening there. So if you take away the unity of the church or the authority of the church and what you do is base your reading on scripture, if you look at the bottom circle, imagine how it affects everything else. Dogma, tradition, sacraments. The sacraments are gone. The dogmas are greatly affected. Tradition is practically done away with because what's the most important thing is your immediate experience with Christ now. So in a nutshell, that's our world. At the back, if you turn the page, you'll see just the rough, it's a rough sketch again, that the end of all of our longing is Christ. It's the universe, it's the purity of Christ's love. The purity of the spirit can never be racial, it can never be national. Faith is a supernatural virtue. It asks us to rise above those things to put them away, to be with Christ. The Logos is all about us. So that's just a brief summary. Any questions or? So all this repetitive, this all, I hope this was useful. Because I, you know, I, I don't know how much of this is already obvious to everybody or how much anybody thinks. My own sense is that I didn't, was never, I mean, I grew up Orthodox, converted. Um, I didn't know this stuff then, not close to it. But the longer I've been in the church, the more aware I am that, that something extraordinary is going on in our church that goes on in other churches, but not quite as much. There's a deeper fullness. And I also believe there's a deeper cross here. You know, um, if you don't know this stuff, why stay in the church? And people are leaving in droves. How much do they know? I mean, in Catholic education, what, what, what are, what are, what are, one guy came up in the Monday night class after, uh, when we started the Reformation, I don't know what we, what was going on in that class, but he came up and he said, amazing, he said, I grew up Catholic. The Catholic church always taught us what to believe and how but they never taught us why you did. And I just thought, you know, education is, by the way, the central theme of the Divine Comedy is education, by the way, but 
I just, it, it grieves my heart. I mean, it makes me sad to think education becomes so mechanical. If that's what it becomes, who's going to, why stay? In the first class a couple of weeks ago after, I can't remember, we were finishing up Milton, I was going to open the class with Doc asking her to comment on something, and a woman in the class named um, Gita, because I see Gita at the gym when we're going, because I'd gone to her after we were getting through with the Reformation and said how she was finding it. Her comment to me was, she said, it's amazing. She put it, she said, if you take this stuff seriously, there's no way you can't change your life. She, what she was confessing was that she realized that she'd taken so much for granted. And that if, because we, what I was emphasizing then, I think, was the, the mystical presence of Christ in the Eucharist, that he's there. How many of us actually go up and feel, to feel like we're entering his kingdom, sharing in his divine life? Which means we, there's some things we can't do anymore. We just have to stop. To be with him means we have to do things differently. And I was mentioning to Suzanne, I wanted to start with Gita. Gita, ironically, didn't show up that night. I saw her at the gym the other day and I said, you know, I was looking for you because I was going to call on you. She blanched. She just, she just didn't want to. Now I'm going to make a point of calling on her whether I have something to ask her or not. But I was mentioning it to Suzanne. Doc, tell the story. This the one that matches up with this, the, the somebody you talked with who knew somebody who was Islamic who... Oh, it was an, it was an article that I read when I was waiting for Robert one day. And, uh, it was written by a Catholic who had a good friend who was Islamic. And he had asked him about the Catholic faith, and so he went through the basic tenets and uh, included in that was the more presence, and at the end of what I gather was a sort of a 15-minute laying out of what Catholics believe, um, the friend said... But with him, the focus on the Eucharist. Yeah, the friend said to him, I don't believe that you all believe that. Because if you did, if you really believed your God was present in that bread and wine, you would be crawling up to that altar on your knees. And I thought, oh, so much for people who go up chewing gum and um, just taking it without it. The sad thing is that they don't, you know, they don't know better. I mean, if you see that, they're still Catholics, but I mean, you just, some, you have to wonder. I'm, I, I'm not saying this with disdain or contempt or negative criticism. For me, it's more sadness. I'm not being critical. I'm not being, I'm not be, there's nothing condescending to this. I look at those people and I think, in some sense, that's a reflection of their education. They, I mean, what, what do people teach? What do people, I mean, if, if we were to start over in our family, we would start over differently. Um, I, in some sense, I'm, I'm so sorry that we didn't know then what we know now. I'd Me like too. to go back, yeah. Me too. Isn't it true for all of us when you reach and you think, God, I mean, I could have done things so differently if, but, I mean, I, I love the line of Paul. I, I can't say how much I love this, where he says, everybody wants to go to Christ. I, I have some trouble with this whole thing about rewards, you know, going to Christ. Everybody wants to go to Christ, and he says, 
I can't, Ephesians, I can't remember which one of the letters, but he said, if, a if it's a choice of going to Christ now or staying behind, I want to stay behind because I want to help these people. You know, he's got a choice to go to Christ, and, and he doesn't because he knows that Christ is nowhere more present than where people need him badly. You think about what's going on with education today and just think, God, you, you wish we were, we could, and I think people are doing a lot. I mean, it's not like they're shirking their jobs or not. It's just, but anyway. Okay. Um, I want to just briefly recall the lines and take. This will finish in our review, and then I'm going to turn to Dante with whatever time we have left and enjoy it. <laughs> Remember last week, um, I read these, this um, thing from the symbolic imagination, these passages. You all should have that handout. It says, Tate, the symbolic angelic imagination. Remember one weeks ago when, we, when I was talking about Milton and how important the angelic mode of knowledge was? Here, let me have your attention. The, the angelic mode of knowledge governs that book. Remember, Raphael comes down and tells Adam the story. And at the end, Paradise Lost ends with Michael giving Adam an immediate vision of what's not yet happened. So Adam's mode of knowledge is angelic, and it's clear from Raphael that he's going to carry that forward in time. And, and one of the questions I put to you, what does that do for our reading of Genesis? No Raphael or Michael appears in Genesis. Uh, we have no reason for believing that the, na the natural mode of knowledge for man is angelic or platonic. I would say quite the contrary, it's not. It's that Adam's human in his body, he knows through his senses. Remember I said that there were two ways of knowing the, the Platonic and the Aristotelian. The, the Platonic begins with the forms, they're eternal, they're in another realm. And you have to work to get outside of the cave before you can have genuine knowledge. There's a truth to that. The Aristotelian way is that you begin with the senses, you take in ordinary things, your mind abstracts, that's the nature of the intellect, it, it goes to the essences of things. And I, I want to take a minute with this. <laughs> um, my wife is, does anybody want to have me over for lunch today? <laughs> um, <coughs> I'm glad for a ride home if anyone here wants to offer one. Um, here, I've done this before, but I, this is, I said this, sorry, this is going to be repetitive. Do, do dogs have a notion of color, the word color? Huh? No. Can dogs see color? I think they can. I think they can think test. Um, do humans have a notion of the word color? Yeah. Where does it come from? Our immediate experiences of colors in our senses. Yellow, blue, red, green, the rainbow. Our senses show us colors. Is blue... Wait, what's the difference between blue and the word, the notion, the idea, color. Can animals understand the notion color? No, because it's an essence, it's a nature. Color is an abstraction from the mind, from particulars. So the senses deliver things. We, 
Everything comes to us as human beings through the singular thing. This. That's the way we know by nature. The senses deliver things to us. The mind abstracts because what the mind knows is not particular senses, I mean things. That's what the senses give to us. What the mind knows is an abstraction, an essence. So the mind can grasp the notion, the notion color. And I hope you see the difference between the, the word color, blue, yellow, red, because the notion color is a notion, it's an idea, it's an essence. Do dogs know the notion tree, or treeness, or bedness, or justice, or health? No, those are all essences. They represent the workings of the mind at a level of abstraction. If you're called to jury duty, one of the things you're going to be tested on is your notion of justice. Now, hold on here. How do we arrive at a notion of justice if it isn't from all of our experiences of injustices in the world? They add up and we arrive at a notion of what justice is. So when we look at the particular case, when we're called a jury duty, we can draw on those and make a judgment about whether something is just or not. So things come to us through the senses. Our mind with its powers of abstractions go to essences. So the mind moves us towards a level of greater universality. Okay? So um, remember that for Plato, you start with the forms, with Aristotle, you start with common things, and then you arrive at more universal realities. The truth of them. That's the nature of the mind. Okay? Now the danger, as I hope is clear right now, is that so often in the modern world we've been encouraged to live in our heads at the expense of our bodies. Two things. The Reformation, we've already seen that because you start with a super sensual. And the idealist philosophers that begin with Descartes, Kant, all the way forward. Because according to the idealist philosophers, Descartes, what we know are not things, what we know are the ideas in our heads. Because what's outside of our heads is a non-mental world. It's physical, it's other. What's in the head is mental. The modern world asserts that there's no way to get, you can't get, you can't resolve those two things. St. Thomas says you can, you start with the senses and you, know, you abstract the modern world, says no. So with Descartes, the, the schism that defines the modern world, the, the divorce between our senses and our bodies, begin with him philosophically, continues with Kant, who took that even farther, and into the other modern philosophers. So the modern philosophers encourage us to stay in our heads, to live with our ideas, and so the mo it, without even knowing, I mean, like Plato's cave, if you go back, Without even knowing that the cave we've grown up in, these shadows on the wall, encourage us to see the world in terms of our own subjective experiences. In my head. Imagine how hard it is to talk with somebody who starts with ideas in their head. We all know that because we all live it. Okay? Okay, here's C.S. Lewis and Alan Tate are responding to this problem. I already read the beginning with um, C.S. Lewis saying that one of the most important things we can do for the modern world is develop or ordered emotions. Because if we don't have a better heart, our mind won't work as well. 
That's Lewis's argument. You, you all got this. I, I would encourage, let me add, please read it again. Just read it again because it's really worth reading. Fourth page, um, Tate right now is aware of what he's calling the angelic imagination, the tendency to live too much in our heads, and what he's calling the symbolic imagination, the tendency to start in our bodies and move to higher dimensions of meaning. Okay, Bottom of page four. This is the simple secret of Dante, but it's a secret which is not necessarily available to the Christian poet today. The Catholic faith has not changed since Dante's time. Same faith, yeah, same beliefs, same dogmas. But the Catholic sensibility, as we see it in modern Catholic poetry, from Thompson to Lowell, has become angelic. And it's not distinguishable, doctrinal differences aside, from poetry by Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, atheists, I take, it, I take it that more than doctrine, even if the doctrine be true, is necessary for a great poetry of action. By the way, I want to say this. One of, one of the temptations I think we face in our world is we want to get along. We live in a world. The one world, one word that is anathema, anathema in our culture is heresy. To a progressive view of democracy, heresy is the last thing it wants to because the assumption of the modern polity is everybody has to get along. It's inclusive. If there's a heresy from that perspective, it's the Catholic Church. Because the Catholic Church holds a dogma. They believe it's heretical if you believe certain things. The one word you cannot pronounce in our world is heresy. Because to the modern progressive democratic view of things, we all have to get along. It wants to do everything it can to get away, do away with differences. Islamic, Jew, Christian, if a Christian asserts himself, he's going to be called bigoted, narrow-minded, prejudiced. They won't use the word heretical because he's out of line with a modern democratic ideal. Everything in the modern world encourages us to get along. And what Tate and Lewis are responding to is that one of the effects of that is that it's cut away at our heart. I mean, it's taken away the source of our being. I take it that more than doctrine, even if the doctrine would be true, is necessary for a great poetry of action. Catholic poets have lost, along with their heretical friends, the power to start with a common thing. They have lost the gift for concrete experience. The abstraction of the modern mind has obscured their way into the natural order. Nature offers to the symbolic poet clear, denotable objects in depth and in the round, which yield the analogies to a higher synthesis. The modern poet rejects the higher syntheses or tosses it in a vacuum of abstraction. If he looks at nature, he spreads the clear visual image into a complex of metaphor from one catechesis to another through Aristotle's permutations of genus and species. He cannot sustain the prolonged analogy, the second and superior kind of figure that Aristotle doubtless had in mind when he spoke of metaphor as the key to the resemblances of things and the mark of genius. One of the marks of genius is the ability of the mind to work by analogies, to move from something known to other things. So with that, that's just a review, I read that. So the point I want to make right now is remember, with Milton, we started with an angelic order. With Dante, we are starting with a common thing, again and again and again. So turn to Dante really quickly. <coughs>
Doc, see if you can find the end of um, the Purgatorio. Can't, or never mind, I'll do it. Perf okay. Oh, okay. Turn to <coughs> turn to page one ninety one. Lewis, do me a favor. Do you have our text? 191. Read the last two um, tercets and the last line from one line 33. Um, My guide and I entered that hidden road to make our way back up to the right world. We never thought of resting while we climbed. We climbed, he first and I behind, until through a small round opening ahead of us, I saw the lovely things the heaven, heavens hold. And we came out to see once more the stars. Okay, who else? Who would like to? Can you Do what? read 387? Page three. Mm -hmm. Turn there. Don, you don't have a book. But now I take good. Yeah, good. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, but now I have completed every page. Wait, and we're. Oh, sorry. Wait. We're, you said uh, right. Right. Um, go to the um, tercet before that reader. Reader, if I had space to write more words, I'd sing, at least in part, of that sweet draught which never could have satisfied my thirst. But now I have completed every page planned for my poem's second canticle. I am checked by the bridle of my art. From those holiest waters I return to her reborn, a tree renewed in bloom with newborn fo foliage, immaculate, eager to rise, now ready for the stars. Don, can you um, can you read um, 584? Page 584. Mm -hmm. At the at the bottom, as as the geometer tries. As a geometer who tries so hard to square the circle but cannot discover. Think as he may, the principle involved. <clears throat> so did I strive with this new mystery. I yearned to know how could our image fit into that circle? How could it conform? But my own wings could not take me so high. Then a great flash of understanding struck my mind, and suddenly its wish was granted. At this point, power failed high fantasy, but like a wheel. In perfect balance turning, I felt my will and my desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. <clears throat> Thank you all. Here, I, I'm just going to repeat those words. Last words of each, can, each canticle, right? Purgator, Inferno Purgatorio. Each canticle ends here. I saw the lovely things the heavens hold. This is the end of Inferno. And we came out to see once more the stars. Purgatorio. From those holiest waters, I returned to her reborn, a tree renewed in bloom 
with newborn foliage immaculate, a tree eager to rise, now ready for the stars. End of the Paradiso. By the way, he's just looked at the Trinity and what he's talking about when saying not being able to square the circle. He's just looked at, at the Trinity, the, the three persons as one, seen them. He was given that vision. But he has no way of describing how the Son and Christ can be one. Because the Son was the image of God, infinite, and Christ was finite, a human, and somehow they're one. And I think in his wisdom as a poet, he did not want to... I mean, do, do we have words to do? I, I don't see it happening. At this point, power failed, high fantasy, but like a wheel in perfect balance turning, I felt my wheel, my will, and my desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. What does each canticle end with? The love in the other stars. A natural, God's natural order. God's natural order. Okay. Let's start. Dante. One thing to alert you to before we start. Um, I, I'm just going to read a couple of passages to get us going. Today was a transition period. I wasn't intending to start um, just to get us going. Next week, one to eight. And eight every week after that. Eight cantos, okay? One of the things I wanted to call your attention to now because it's going to be important for everything you do through the entire work is this word called contrapasso. Against the sin, contra, against, passo, the sin, contrapasso. <clears throat> Dante is extraordinary. It's so clear when you read the Commedia that Dante would have been an amazing doctor. And I'm saying that not facetiously at all. When we get to every level, each level of sin, the limbo, lust, gluttony, avarice, you know, all of them, when you get to each level, we're, we're going to encounter um, a scene, an atmosphere. That scene, that atmosphere, is the effect of the sin. So pay close attention. I'm really, you have, this, this is an amazing gift to us, just an amazing gift. Pay really close attention to the words that people speak because the words will give them away, even if they're masked. Dante's teaching us to see through lies. So pay close attention to the words. Pay close attention to their actions, what they're doing, the punishment they're receiving, and the atmosphere. Because the atmosphere is a manifestation. It's a symptom of the sin. Um, it, another way of looking at it, it's the effect and um, one way we know causes is by their effects. You can reason from effects to causes. Okay? If you see a footprint, right? you, you won't know the essence of the, the person there. You won't know that. But you'll know somebody existed to be there. So we can reason to some degree from effects to causes. From causes to effects too. So every, at every level, Dante is showing us the nature of a particular sin with absolute clarity. And you can, so when we, when we look at ourselves as human beings, we don't see the invisible things inside. What's inside of it is so often obscure anyway, right? I mean, it's, our feelings are in such a jumble. 
We know when we're happy or angry or confused, but it's hard very often to get clarity on what's going on in there. Okay? Dante's making it clear. He would have been a, an extraordinary doctor. So every time you look at an atmosphere, understand that that's an image helping you, all of us, to understand the nature of what he's dealing with. Okay? Because the central theme of the Commedia is learning. Now, stop and think about this here. I'm going to come back to this again next week. We saw that Milton called the whole epic tradition into question. He put Satan forward as an epic hero going on this quest, and we know that there was nothing that Satan did that he saw clearly. He couldn't even see how he lied. It's just It's the nature of the intellect when it goes bad. That everything he does is misconceived. Everything, even if he doesn't see it. And the fact that Milton took him as the epic hero calls into question every other epic hero who came before him. Remember, all the demons in hell, when we're first introduced to them, are the prototypes of the ancient gods, the Homeric gods. So Milton sees all of that as evil. How could he not? According to his beliefs, right? Man's fallen, he's depraved. So he has nothing good to say about Homer and Virgil. You know my own feelings about that because I love both Homer and Virgil. The early church, Augustine loved them. I mean, the whole early church realized that without the pagan world, Christianity would have been half empty. Who does Dante take as his guide? Virgil. I want to come back to that because that's enormous. Milton calls into question that whole epic tradition. He undermines the epic hero. Okay? Dante's doing a similar thing, but without all the negations that Milton has. Dante's giving us an epic hero that's completely different, radically different from all the epic heroes of the ancient past. Because remember, what defined the epic heroes in the past was they did extraordinary things that other people couldn't do. They stood above everybody else. They took on obstacles. They had a divinely important task. Nobody else did. They had to go up against tremendous obstacles to accomplish what they had to do. Achilles had to give up his life to go back to battle. Nobody could touch him. Odysseus comes home to a marriage, and, but to make that marriage good, he has to understand all these disorders that he deals with at sea. And the marriage that we see at the end is set in contrast to Nestor's marriage and Menelaus's marriage. So Homer's giving us a contrast between what can happen in a marriage, but the cost of getting there, how hard it is to do. And you know in the Aeneid that Aeneas is found in Rome, the eternal city. We're already at, this is amazing to me when you put that all together. It's like Christianity is right there. It's just amazing. All those epic heroes did extraordinary things. Milton undercuts them. Dante's giving us a new image of an epic hero. It's not this great hero. Dante passes out constantly. He doesn't want, in the, in the second or third canto, he's going to say to Virgil, get somebody else, I can't do this, I'm not, I'm not strong enough. Paul went into the heavens, I can't enter this vision. He weeps a number of times, he feels sorry. Virgil's Vir Virgil, in the level of Dees, when he gets there, Virgil will physically pick him up and turn him around. When the Medusa shows up, he says, do not look at that person. He can't trust him, because what's our tendency? When we drive by and watch Rex on the... Highway, what's our tendency? To look. What's the effect of looking at evil? What's the effect when you look at the Medusa? It's 
turn to stone. That is, if we deal with evil directly, the danger to us is despair. We just get hardened. Virgil picks him up and turns around. The level of sloth, he will shake Dante violently because Dante's sleeping and he shouldn't be. So the epic hero we have here is not an epic hero overcoming these unbelievable obstacles. He's learning moment by moment by moment. What Dante is showing us is that the most important thing for a human being, go back to the comments we were making a while ago about Catholics growing up. The most important thing that can happen to Dante is that he learn. And the requirement, two requirements for that, that he be open and he have a guide, that somebody is there with him. So those are some of the fundamental things to Dante's Commedia, okay? So, in, and I'm gonna make this argument, and I said this when we did Milton, you wouldn't have appreciated it then. There, even though Milton's taken as a figure in the modern world, pointed to the modern I believe he is in the sense that it's a Reformation work looking forward and we're still dealing with those problems, that in some ways he's absolutely Homeric. He goes back, his treatment of the gods and the angels to me is, to me it's, it's embarrassing and disturbing. Dante's modern in this sense, unlike all the other epic poets who came before, he takes himself knowing that every human being has his own story, is facing the same thing. The question for every one of us is, will we be guided, will we learn, will we be open so that we can attain our final end? So Dante's absolutely modern. It's, it, to me, it's, it's a preparation for the modern novel. We're moving out of an epic world. It's, it's still an epic world, but it's pointing towards modernity. So just keep those things in mind. I'm just going to read a couple of passages to get us going and we'll stop. Okay. Any questions before? Because I know this has been a lot. Um, it's a transition day. We had a lot to cover from Milton here. I have a question. Yeah. So, um, not about the story, but the format. Because in, um, in one of your um, handouts, you wrote about the pattern like A, B, A, and mm -hmm. B, C. Right. I, I didn't pick it up. Oh, before. that's Italian. Because remember, this is a translation. Oh, okay, right. By the way, Dorothy Sayers did a translation, and as, as nearly as I can remember, she kept to that rhyme scheme. Okay. Yeah, it's a true set that the... I wanna, I'm going to go back. I'm going to take that up next week, the, the, um, the principle of the Trinity that informs the whole work in so many ways. The Tercet stanzas, the three-line stanzas, the forward-moving rhyme scheme that moves you forward even though you're in the, so it's, it's like stairs, it's like that image of the still point. Um, even though the structure stays the same, it's always moving us forward. Even though the Trinity remains the same, it's always moving us forward. Um, the three canticles, each, each of the canticles is divided into three sections. We'll see, I'm, I'll go into it next week, but. Okay, first page. Next week when we start, I'll, I'll give a brief historical background. One of the ironies is you'll see that what Dante's dealing with wasn't very different from what Milton was dealing with. The disorders, the political disorders going on in the world then were, <laughs> things haven't changed much. Midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood 
where I had wandered off from the straight path. How hard it is to tell what it was like, this wood of wilderness, savage and stubborn. The thought of it brings back all my old fears, a bitter place. Death could scarce be bitter, but if I would show the good that came of it, I must talk about things other than that good. How I entered there, I cannot say. He goes on. So it begins, Dante's in a dark wood, which really means a disorder. So at initially, what Dante's showing us is that there's going to be an allegorical aspect to this poem, that there's going to be um, another level of meaning that will be clear. He's coming out of a dark wood. He's leaving a disorder in his life. Um, he looks up in this mountain, and he sees the sun up here. Allegorically, I think what we're meant to see is that he's reached a point in the middle of his life, like I think most of us do, where we question the value of what we've done in life, whether we really gave ourselves to what we should have, or whether our life hasn't been wasted in so many ways. When he looks at the sun, he, wants, he longs for it. He wants to go up to that sun. But notice the line, a bitter place. Death could scarce be bitter, but if I would show the good that came of it, I must talk about things other than the good. Dante's aim here is to show the good of something, but there's no way to do that without dealing with the bad things that brought him there. So one of the first things he's got to do is deal with evil, or he won't be able to show the good. So in some sense, the Pope's like a witnessing we can't ever do justice to the good without dealing with evil because it's that evil that we have to overcome to attain the good, yeah? In any way we avoid it, we're undercutting our end. We have to deal with it, as ugly as it is, okay? Um, page four, I raised my head and saw the hilltop shawled in a morning rays of light from that planet that leads men straight ahead on every road. And only then did terror start subsiding in my heart, which rose to heights of fear that night. I spent in deepest desperation, just as a swimmer still with panting breath, now safe upon the shore, out of the deep, I turned for one last look at the dangerous waters. So I, although my soul was turned to flee, turned round to gaze once more upon that past that never let a living soul escape. Interesting that that's in terms of water. Let me offer you, I'm not sure about this, but let me offer you a thought. He's describing it as somebody, a swimmer, trying to cross a pass and being unable. Nobody's left that pass alive. It's a question in, in my mind whether what he's not alluding to is baptism indirectly. In this sense, if baptism means anything, it means dying to yourself. And until you do that, you'll never have life. <coughs> Nobody's escaped that pass alive. So he starts to climb the hill, and he's met by three beasts, the leopard, full of spots, the lion, very violent, and the she-wolf, okay? He's beaten back, and he despairs because he wants to get there, and he can't. And suddenly, line 60 or so, the she-wolf is the most dangerous threat to him, forces him back. So she made me do that relentless beast, coming towards me slowly, step by step. She forced me back to where the sun is mute. Whatever these are, they block the darkness. Um, while I was rushing down to that low place, my eyes made out a figure coming towards me, once grown faint, perhaps from too much silence. 
And when I saw him standing in the wasteland, have pity on my soul, I cried to him, which, whichever you are, shade or living man, it turns out to be Virgil. Now, um, a figure coming towards me of one grown faint, perhaps from too much silence. How long has it been since Virgil wrote? This is 1320. Virgil wrote 20 years before Christ, so 1,350 years. Now, hold on, everybody. Just stop and think about this. How often do epics come around? Homer, 800 B.C. Virgil, 20 B.C. Dante. Am I getting the major ones? The Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Dante, 1300. You know for at least my reading that um, we won't get anything close to that, I think, until we get to Melville's Moby Dick. It's an, it's an epic work. It's an epic work, in the, sep, in the sense that an epic gives us a worldview and a heroic quest. What Dante's saying here, too quiet, one grown faint perhaps from too much silence. Who's reading epics anymore? And what's the loss by not hearing Virgil? What's the loss today from not hearing Dante? Um, Virgil would go on to say to him. Um, Mary looked down on you on pity. She went to get Lucia light. Lucia went to get Beatrice. Beatrice went to get me, Virgil. What we're watching, and we'll learn later, Dante at this point in his life is in danger of being damned. We'll find that out later. He's in danger of being damned. What's happening at this point is there's this longing in his soul. He wants to return to God, and he tries to do it alone. Set that up against Milton. He wants to do it by himself. Um, and what we're watching is that a whole divine order is put into motion and every action that's taken is, a, is in the line of love. What's moving heaven is love. Mary's love for Dante. Lucia, light for her and Beatrice. Beatrice knows Dante loves her and assuming she loves him. And Virgil, they all know that Dante loves Virgil. What God's working with is the loves that human beings have. Let it be a baseball player for the game, whatever. Whatever our loves, where, wherever love is involved, God has something to work with in us. Whatever that is, whatever the form is. A whole divine order is working. Did Dante see it before? No. Do we see it? What, remember that question I asked two weeks ago. What's our faith of? What's the object of our faith? What do we believe is going on right now? If we're believing anything, if faith means anything, it means we believe in the certainty of those things going on that we can't see. So the situation that Dante is showing us here in the beginning is exactly relates to this notion of faith as we know it. The whole divine order is put into operation. Now, I just want to turn, turn to um, five. I want to just quickly jump ahead. I, I'm, by the way, next week... I'm going to go back to the beginning. I'm going to start forward. I just want to throw out some things to get you going here. Dante will, Virgil will take Dante across the Styx, the river, and it's going to be interesting to look at that. And then he will descend. What Virgil's telling him is you cannot go up that mountain until you go down. The three beasts that chased him back, he's going to encounter here in the forms of three sins. 
the sins of incontinence or the leopard, the sins of violence or the lion, and the sins of fraud, she-wolf cunning, he's going to be here. So what we're learning here, Dante cannot begin to climb that mountain until he's learned to see his own sins. How can we change if we don't see that we need changing? The devil's condition, Satan's condition in Paradise Lost is that he thinks he sees, and we know that he doesn't see anything right. How can we change if we don't see? And how much, how open are we to others having something to say to us if we don't listen to others? To me, it's a frightening condition. Because if we think we know everything and we don't listen to others, what is, what is it we're not seeing about ourselves? So the fundamental condition here is learning to see ourselves being open, hearing somebody else. Um, the first condition for going up is we have to go down to learn to see what's inside. If we don't do that, we don't get up the mountain. In the first proper level of lust, he comes across Francisca. And this deserves a word. This is the beginning of hell. Limbo is sort of outside. It's, it's part of hell, but it's, it belongs to the infernal world. But here we get the first active motion of a sin, lust. It'll be lust, gluttony, avarice, and it'll go on. Um, when he comes here, the first person we have any extended time with is Francisca. She's a beautiful woman. She's educated, she's aristocratic, she seems to be very sensitive. When Dante hears her story, he passes out. That's how moving she is. Think, think about how dangerous women can be when they're telling sad stories about themselves. Um, so the first character is Francisca. The story behind her is that she and her lover, Paola, were reading a, Lance, or a, a Arthurian romance about Lancelot and Guinevere, the adultery. And the, she describes it. The two of them are reading. They obviously reach a, a point in the book, the story. Dante's critique of art. How dangerous is art? They're reading a story. I kind of love the ironies here. They're reading a story. They're so overtaken by the scene that she says, and, and there was no more reading that day. <laughs> so we know what happened. In, in, the, in the act of the sexual act that they're engaged in, the husband comes in and kills them. So they have no time to, this is interesting. Think about how the problem here. They have no time to confess. What Dante's saying is, be really careful what you do because it may catch you. So if you're playing around with things, stop acting like you still have, anyway, so the opening into hell directly here is a scene in which it couldn't be more ambiguous, more equivalent. Um, it's an act of adultery. It, it's the closest thing to love. The, the most, the lust is the closest thing. We're going to see that in purgatory too because the highest next to love is lust. And they're caught in the act and here they are. So imagine how she would feel unfairly treated. I don't deserve to be here or however you want to. Anyway, now he comes here and he sees winds buffeting about on page 29. As doves called by desire to return to their sweet nest with wings raised high and poised float downward through the air guided by will so these two left the flock where Dido is and came towards us through the malignant air, which was the tender power of my call. Helen is here, Cleopatra's here, Achilles is here at a level of lust, not violence. He won't be up 
or down lower. It's here at a level of lust. Interesting. Go on. O living creature, gracious and so kind, who makes your way here through the dingy air to visit us who stain the world with blood. If we could claim as friend the king of kings, we would beseech him that he grant you peace. You who show pity for our atrocious sight. Dante's response to this is to be overwhelmed with pity. Whatever pleases you to hear or speak, we will hear and we will speak with about with you as long as the wind here stays. Here where we are is silent. Go down um, a few lines. Love quick to kindle in the gentle heart. Seize this one for the beauty of my body torn from me. How it happens still offends me. Love that, notice the way the word love keeps turning in on itself here, what she's doing with language. Love that excuses no one loved from loving seized me so strongly with delight in him. It was somebody else, it was love. Mm -hmm. As you see, he never leaves my side. Love led us straight to sudden death together. Cain awaits the one who quenched our lives. That's her husband. Because he committed murder, he will be down lower. These were the words that came from them to us. Okay, just take a minute. Characterize Francisca here, anybody. Mary Jane, can go ahead. I agree with her that she shouldn't be there. <laughs> 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 Boy, have you got some work out of you. <laughs> when we get to the end of the inferno, I'm going to take a few minutes off and speak to the whole issue of pity. We talked about that since the Iliad, because if you remember, what took Patroclus into the war was pity. He got killed. Every great poet has had to wrestle with it, because it's, it's so, it seems to be so close to love. You know... Um, Dante's going to show is it's one of the most dangerous emotions that it's a natural emotion. It's also a very dangerous one. If you remember, we've talked about this, I know we have, because I've gone over it a number of times. In Aristotle's Poetics, where he talks about tragedy, remember he talks about the peripatia, the turn, and the agnanorsis, the recognition you see. The tragic emotions that are supposed to be purged, the catharsis that takes place, you have to purge yourself of the emotion because if you don't, you get arrested in a tragic motion. A tragic action. What are the two tragic emotions? Pity and fear. Because you know they can be the most paralyzing. You can feel sorry for something and it can just trap you. you can, enabling sticks us there. You feel so bad for somebody you don't. You're, and you're afraid. You're frightened to move. So they're both natural emotions and they, they present serious difficulties. For us as humans, always. And I mean, we see it right here at the beginning. Dante's going to pass out. He's so overcome by. How can you not love this man? He's, to me, oh, he's, so, he's so human. I mean, he, to me, he's. He, I, I, it's hard for me to believe all of us don't identify with him in some way. Um, characterize Francisca, anybody? Giovanni, can you? She thinks uh, she doesn't belong there because it was out of love that she was, you know, moved mm -hmm. to right. be with this man. Right. So what's wrong with love? You're going to leave it there? It is... I think so. 
I don't think it was really love. It was lust. I mean, it was it 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 masked itself in loving. Yeah. But it really wasn't. Right. It was a giving into feelings of the moment, and and not really love. And not holding on to a law that they were bound to. I mean, that's, that's the that's true. Yeah. She in, feels sorry for herself. That's yeah. She does. She feels sorry for herself. Yeah. And thinks she's been um, <clears throat> maligned in a way that she should not have. Been. Right. One of the parishioners in the Monday night class popped up right away, and she said, "She presents herself as a victim." And you, you know how easy it is to feel sorry for victims, and and how dangerous that is. What I mean, here we are at the beginning. So Dante's cueing us in a lot. Who does she blame? Love is one. I mean, clearly, she. It's like she objectifies it the way you know that it's not her. It's not her fault. It's love. But what do you do with the lines? Um, She's blaming God, I think. Yeah. What do you do if we could claim as friend the King of Kings? We would beseech him that he grant you peace. You who show pity for our atrocious plight. God's at fault. He's not a friend. If he were friendly to her, they wouldn't be there. So indirectly, she's blaming God. She's not taking responsibility herself for anything here. So right, in, right here, I want everybody to think seriously about this. This is a woman. <laughs> Women emotionally are far more tender than men, I think. I, think, I hope that's safe. She's beautiful. Um, she has a lovely sensibility. She's educated. She's gracious. Um, and then she tells this sad story. Imagine the effect that that would have on a man hearing it. Now, what's the contrapasso? What's the condition in which Dante meets those two lovers? They're bound together. The, the atmospheric condition. Oh. Winds. Winds. Oh, yeah. What's that an image of? Hmm? Hmm? Or the emotions, I mean the uncontrollable, you're giving into the moment that, that in, in the, remember the contrapasso, in that condition you will find an image of what's in the, the nature of that sin itself, uncontrolled, shifting, mm-hmm. not, no law, no reason, you're giving into the emotions of the moment. That, so what Dante showed, listen to her words. Earlier we would have seen when Dante first enters, um, um, whoever enters here give up all hope. Who enters here gives up all hope. And the other thing that Virgil said is really important. He says, whoever enters here has to be in guard because in this place, whoever's here has lost the good of the intellect. That at every level we're going to see that one of the effects of sin is a blindness to reason to the mind. So that's why I'm saying pay attention to the words of people because they will give something away that clearly they don't fully see. And pay attention to the condition. At every level, indicate for yourself in your own reading what's going on in that level and how it's an image of the sin itself because we will see something about that sin that in itself is invisible because it's interior. Okay? So we're off. So... Enjoy the reading. It's, it's one. I, I will go back over. I'll do a brief overview. Um, and then I'll go back to the beginning and we'll start down here. We'll take the first eight cantos. Okay.
Thank you. 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 Thank you.